Paul has said that if the Lord wills, he plans to come back, and that's what happens in chapter 19. He returns back to Ephesus. We know from 1823 that as he started that journey, he passed through Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples there before he comes on across what we would call Turkey, down to Ephesus. Uh, so, would somebody read chapter 19, verses 1 to 7? And it came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, and there were in all about twelve men. So, Paul comes to Ephesus here. Now, Ephesus was just a really important place. It was a provincial capital, so it was important for political reasons. It was kind of an economic hub. The commerce to the interior of Asia Minor came through Ephesus. So it was an economic power. And then the Temple of Artemis was there. So religiously, it was a very important city. And Paul comes here to Ephesus. And uh, he finds some disciples. And what does he ask these disciples? If they received the Holy Spirit. Yes, when you believe, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Now, receiving the Holy Spirit is a really key thing, obviously, in defining a person's relationship with God and so forth. And he asks about that, and they said, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, that indicates there's some kind of a, a disconnect here. There's some sort of a problem. And you know what we might do in the case like this? We might have launched into some sort of dissertation on the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or we might have launched into some sort of rebuke about how could they be believe and not know about the Holy Spirit. Or who knows what we might have done. But I think Paul does the right thing. What's the next thing he does? He asks them what they believed or what they knew. Yeah, he asks a follow-up question. Because I think what he's trying to do is figure out why are they confused about this? What's really the problem? So he asked, well, what were you baptized into? We're kind of probing to find out, you know, what's, what's the, the situation here? And that, since the Holy Spirit is received when someone is baptized, that's a reasonable question to ask. And what does Paul find out? John's John, oh, that's the issue. Now he can teach them, starting where they are and giving them the additional information that they need. It's exactly what we need to do. You know, we might, uh, you know, we might ask somebody a question like, uh, you know, do you do you worship God with musical instruments? They might say, yes. 
and we might start into some, you know, thing, you know, criticizing them for, for still trying to follow the Old Testament. Why don't you know? Well, maybe that's not their problem. Maybe they don't even realize that the New Testament doesn't say anything about musical instruments in worship. Maybe they've got some other issue that they don't understand yet. Maybe they think it's okay to do things that God has not authorized. You know, you kind of have to find out, well, why do they think that's okay, or why are they doing it? Maybe they know it's wrong and they're doing it anyway. We don't know until we ask some more questions and figure out, oh, here's the issue, here's the problem, and then we can begin to teach, or if necessary, rebuke, or whatever it is that they need. So that's, that's what Paul did here, and I think it's really helpful. So, Paul starts with John's baptism. He says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. And so he's able to start with what John says to teach them about Jesus and fill in the rest of the story for them. When they hear this, when they hear the gospel and the things about Jesus that fills out what John had not been able to tell them or what maybe Apollos or whoever had not been able to tell them, then what do they do? They're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Which shows you that their problem is not rebelliousness. They were willing to do what they ought to do when they understood it. Sometimes the problem people have is just a lack of information. They need to be taught more. Now sometimes it doesn't make any difference what you teach. People aren't going to do it. It depends. Paul's had some of both. But in this case, they're receptive. Paul teaches them and they respond and so this is kind of an interesting situation if you stop and think about the uh, who's where we know from the end of chapter 18 that Apollos had been preaching in Ephesus initially only about the baptism of John because he didn't know the rest of the story I can't prove that these 12 men were people taught by Apollos but they may very well have been. He was an eloquent preacher in that area. So it may be that Paul is giving further instructions to Apollos' old students. Where is Apollos in verse 1? He's in Corinth helping the brethren up there that Paul has taught. <laughs> so that's kind of an interesting exchange if you stop and think about it. Um, another thing that I think is important to notice here if someone was baptized with John's baptism, was that good enough? It's a baptism. I mean, did John did John John not immerse? He did. You know, didn't he have people repent before he immersed them? He did. Wasn't his baptism for the remission of sins? It was. Well, I mean. Why wasn't that good enough? It was at the time. You're right. Just like the old law was at the time. You're right. But something else came along since then. Now, if people who received a baptism that at one time was acceptable needed to be baptized again now that the baptism of Christ is uh, applicable, what about people who receive a baptism today that never did have the authority of Christ? 
you know, somebody who isn't baptized, you know, in Christ's baptism, according to Christ's pattern, and it never was a baptism the Lord authorized. If even these who were baptized with John's baptism that was valid for a time had to be baptized again, I think this is a good passage to help us see that if the baptism doesn't fit the pattern of Christ, <laughs> then it's not appropriate. And it needs, somebody needs to be baptized again. It's kind of a, a misnomer in a way to say be baptized again. Be immersed again, but with the true baptism, you know, the second time around. Do you have comments and questions on all of them? Right. Um, yeah, as far as the baptism goes, um, I... I can't remember, I don't think I've asked that in this study, but I, I've asked a lot of Christians. Um, you know, does it really matter as far as, <clears throat> since the baptism itself, you know, is what's, uh, you know, um, washing away our sins, does it really matter as far as, like, if a girl does the baptizing or if a non-Christian does, you know, the baptizing, because uh, the person being baptized, that's what matters, right? I mean, because we always see examples of how Christian guys were baptizing, but does it matter with the baptizer is? You know what I mean? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I, I think perhaps the way to say this is not that the baptism itself washes away our sins. God washes away the sins Correct, when yeah. we submit to what he's told us to do. Mm -hmm. So really the question is, does God have instructions for us on who must do the baptizing? And the answer to that is no. Okay. Not that I can see. You have some passages that strongly indicate that who does the baptizing isn't important. For example, in um, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says he was glad he didn't baptize very many of them. Now, it wasn't that he was glad that they weren't baptized. They were baptized. He's just glad he wasn't the one doing it because they might say he was baptizing in his own name if, you know, he had baptized them himself. Well, clearly, if it mattered who did it, you'd want to do it yourself. There's no emphasis given to who did the baptizing. In John 4, it said that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. Then it turns around and says, but Jesus didn't baptize anybody. <laughs> his disciples did. They were, they were, it was Jesus' baptism and yet, it wasn't administered, if you want to use that term, I don't know what you want to say, it wasn't administered by Jesus. So, it doesn't matter who the person is who does the baptizing. Um, you know, some leadership concepts might indicate it'd be better for a man to do it, uh, but as far as the validity of the baptism, it wouldn't matter. What if it had to be a faithful Christian who did the baptizing? How do you know? How do you know? Because whether or not they're faithful or not depends on their heart. And you can't read that. And if actually to be validly baptized it had to be a faithful Christian who baptized you, then wouldn't you have to know whether it was a faithful Christian who baptized them <laughs> for them to really be a Christian and who baptized, yeah. that could get to that's, be a real problem. That's what I wondered too, yeah. And, and I think the principle is that when seed is sown, it reproduces after its kind. It doesn't make any difference who does the sowing. And so who, the, the, 
the idea of baptizing someone is more or less a service that's performed. But, but as far as I can see in the Bible, in the New Testament, there is no emphasis ever given to qualifications for the baptizer. I agree with you completely. I just wanted to see it. Good question. Other thoughts and questions through 19.5? I think it points out, or you can use this to show the uh, equality of believing and baptizing. Because he says, when you believed, what happened? And then later he says, well, what were you baptized into? Yes. And that it's a given. If you believed, they, obviously they were baptized, and he's asking into what? Yes, I think you're exactly right. You know, believing, being baptized, even perhaps receiving the Spirit are things that all happen at the same time. And so you, they, he doesn't necessarily mention all of them. You surely see that in the book of Acts. There are lots of passages that mention that people were converted, but they don't go into detail about everything that was done. They just say they believed, or they turned to the Lord, or they were baptized, or whatever. All of those are implying the whole package. Yes? So, after their obedience in verse 5, at what point do they receive the Holy Spirit, as, as asked earlier? Well... Verse 6, when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. So we know that when, after they had been baptized, Paul laid his hands on them, they received these spiritual gifts and could speak in tongues and prophesy. My understanding would be that there's a sense in which they received the Holy Spirit when they were baptized, from Acts 2.38 and passages like that, but that Paul sometimes refers to receiving the Spirit in this special way of having these special gifts. Maybe that's why he had asked them initially if they'd received the Holy Spirit when they believed, because he as an apostle could pass on the spiritual gifts. Perhaps he was asking that so that he could have laid his hands on them when they hadn't even heard there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. Clearly there's some problems and he has to deal with that, and now he's able to give them these spiritual gifts. From what we see in Acts 8, it appears that the spiritual gifts were passed on by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Shake. <clears throat> I'm not sure if I misunderstood or not, but something you said kind of reminded me of a, of a way somebody explained this. So you're saying that when Paul asked if they had the Holy Spirit, he wasn't necessarily referring to if they had the, the like, spiritual gifts, but nor if they, or is it that he was referring to the fact that they had the Holy Spirit when they became baptized? I don't know the answer to that, but he might have been asking about the spiritual gifts. Okay. Because I mean, I heard someone say, well, he's asking if, you know, since the Holy Spirit lives inside us when we're baptized or whatever, and I know there's a big argument about that as well, but was he asking if they'd even accepted, not that he, not the Holy Spirit had given them gifts yet, but just they had accepted the Holy Spirit through belief. So I don't know, I was just asking. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know that I can prove it for sure, but based upon what he does here, Maybe he was asking if they had received spiritual gifts, since he would be able to impart those as an apostle to them. <clears throat> I mean, it makes me wonder if he was saying, if, you've if, you, if you have accepted the Holy Spirit, then I can give you these gifts because you accept them. Perhaps. 
perhaps. <clears throat> if he's not talking about the spiritual gifts, how would they know? Well, my question would be different, but it comes to the same point. If they believe they'd receive the Holy Spirit, if we're just talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, right. so that'd almost be at, like asking, you know, <laughs> did you have faith when you believed? Right. Well, of course you did. That's what it means. So, okay. I, 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 it seems better to me to take it as asking about the spiritual gifts. That's the thing that Paul could give them and that would be relevant for him to ask them about. I wouldn't be dogmatic, but I, I can see a lot less problems with that. <coughs> the one problem is he asks them if they received it when they believed. If he's talking about the spiritual gifts, then that would have been, it wouldn't have had to have been at that moment. <coughs> yes, although the times we see, which is extremely limited, spiritual gifts being given for sure, at least in Acts 8, it accompanied their obedience to the gospel shortly thereafter when Peter and John went down. I suspect when apostles were present, it was common after they are baptized to lay their hands on them and give them the spiritual gifts. That's my guess. So he may have been asking, was there an apostle present You know, when you believed to give you these spiritual gifts? Again, I won't be dogmatic, but that all fits together well for me. Other questions or comments? After verse 4, where the, his, his immediate quote response to them ends, do you think it's likely he had more to say before they ended up being baptized? Or do you think that they acted simply upon that, that statement in verse 4? I think he had more to say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got to teach them about right. Jesus. Yeah. These are highly abridged accounts. Okay. Um. A whole conversation about the Holy Spirit versus the spiritual gifts. I just want to make sure I, I, I think I understand what you're saying. But um, like in verse six, when it says that Paul laid his hands on them, and it says the Holy Spirit came upon them, are you saying that the Holy when it says Holy Spirit there, that could be synonymous with many spiritual gifts? Like well, I think the Holy Spirit came on them in the sense of giving them spiritual gifts. Yes. Okay. I, I don't know how to say that. I'm not even sure what the proper terminology. <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah. They had but, already received the Holy Spirit. Yes. But, but now the Spirit is acting in a way to demonstrate. But when you receive the Holy Spirit, that doesn't keep you from receiving it more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see people being having the Holy Spirit and then being filled with the Holy Spirit and then being filled with the Holy Spirit. and It's kind of like in uh, the Gospels. Sometimes you see them believing and then you see them believing and then you see them believing. You know, it's not like there's it's an either-or thing. The right. Spirit can come and be in them in a fuller sense. Well, Acts 6. Yes. Men full of the Holy Spirit were, were chosen, and then the, their, the apostles laid their hands on them, and they could work. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I think, you know, you can never get too much of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Other thoughts and comments on this section through verse 7? There were in all about 12 men. This is not a big deal, but I'll just throw this out. It's very common for Luke to use about when he has numbers. You'll find that quite a few times. So this is rounded off or an estimate, but about 12 men. 
Alright, 8 through 10. And when he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, uh, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Uh, and this continued for two years, so that all who dwell in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Alright, so he entered the synagogue and spoke out boldly for three months, uh, which is typically what he'll do. Goes to the synagogue first. Um, however, some were hardened, disobedient, spoke evil of the way, and so he self-excommunicated himself from the synagogue, evidently, withdrew from there, and went where? <coughs> yeah, he went to a school that was owned or run by a guy named Tyrannus, which means tyrant. I read this, I, th I like this phrasing. It's extremely difficult, except perhaps at certain bleak moments of parenthood, to think of any parent naming a child this. <laughs> I don't have a good way of putting that. <laughs> uh, so, I'm guessing it's the nickname his students gave him. <laughs> that's military school. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't recall that we ever nickname any teachers that, but I think of a few that deserved it, so. You know, but with a name like that, you wonder how many students he had, so. <laughs> but Paul goes there and teaches. You know, I don't know how that worked. I don't know if Tyrannus was a Christian and let him use the school, if Paul rented it, if he just, you know, was given the chance to teach there, some suggest that probably during the middle part of the day, the heat of the day, they probably didn't have classes. Maybe Paul could use the school then. I don't really know. But that's where he kind of sets up. And uh, he ends up preaching in Ephesus for, for two years, probably two years beyond this first three months. And all who live in Asia, that whole area, Asia, not the continent of Asia like we know, but Asia Minor, uh, were able to hear the word. You know, so there's a lot of emphasis. When Paul goes somewhere, it's not just to teach right there, but it's for the word to spread out through the surrounding area. Paul would often go to main cities, but then the, the gospel would be spread in the countryside. Comments and questions? Is this, I mean, when it says school, is it just like rethink of a school? I mean, the yeah, same I'm, concept? I think so. Okay, I didn't know, not, you know, like a, like a different. <laughs> as far as I know, it's the same thing. Okay. <clears throat> so it's saying he, he taught at the school for two years? I'm assuming so. Not that he was, I'm assuming not that he taught in, you know, like as a part of the school, he wasn't a school teacher, but that's the building he used to do his teaching. I mean, I know some brethren who meet schools. Uh, I've known that in the U.S. That's a little bit more common in Brazil. In some places, it's pretty common for them to, to use a school building. It's kind of handy, you know, they don't usually have school on Sunday. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they've usually got classrooms, they've usually got some open space mm -hmm. and so forth. And so, uh, so you probably just taught after hours then, like when we're reading this. Yeah, I'm guessing after hours or, or you know, during times it wasn't being used, could be it's a school that's got extra space. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. 
Well, the teacher called Tyrant, they might have been. <laughs> 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 yeah. Maybe about the only way for him to get any income is uh, <laughs> to rent the space out to somebody else. I don't know. It's kind of funny. All right, how about 11 to 16? And God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists, who went from place to place, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That didn't work so well, did it? <laughs> wow. But I love verse 11. Of all the things, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. <laughs> You know, <laughs> that's a kind of a funny way to think about that. Well, and another thing, New King James Version says unusual miracles. Yeah, yeah, yeah same idea. As opposed yeah. to the usual kind. Yeah, you know? yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, let's <laughs> just do an ordinary miracle. <laughs> but when you stop and think about it, there were so many signs being done by Paul and others in the first century that it's almost like they became ordinary. And uh, these were uh, these were extra special ones. Uh, and they were, in fact. Uh, handkerchiefs and aprons were carried from Paul's body to the sick. And actually when, I guess, the sick people came into contact with these, you know, aprons and so forth, they were healed. Which is kind of extraordinary. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of Acts 5 when Peter, you know, just when his shadow fell upon someone, they were healed. So both of those are kind of an extension of the norm and kind of a parallel. Uh, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, and, and I guess maybe it's not surprising what happens, starting in verse 13, because I mean it's obvious that uh, Paul's on to something here. And uh, you've got Jewish exorcists who you know, went through whatever they went through to quote-unquote cast out demons. My assumption is that they weren't really doing real exorcisms. There are all kinds of exorcisms in Brazil that is super common in the evangelical churches. There are nights every week in many of those churches de uh, devoted to demon possession and so forth. And the spiritists also do their forms of casting out demons. So that's a really common thing in Brazil. That's yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, I... I I'm assuming that what's done by these guys perhaps is no more effective than what's done in Brazil. They will cast out, quote unquote, the demon, and the next week the person will, you know, re-manifest themselves in the same church and they'll cast them out again. Uh, but at any rate, these guys are Jewish exorcists and, and they think it would probably work well if they could use the same name that Paul did. You know, they had this idea that if you knew the name of the God and recited the name, it was sort of like a secret formula and it kind of tapped into the, that God's power because you used his name and therefore the demon would have to be, have to leave. 
Um, and you can you can see people with that kind of superstitious idea. Uh, of course, they don't they're not followers of Christ. They're not really believers in Christ, but they found the they found the <clears throat> word. They found the name, and so they say, you know, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. There were seven uh, seven brothers who who are doing uh, this, and what does the demons do? Do what? Beats them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, the demon says, "I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who are you?" And uh, and does he he beats him up? You know, he leaps on him, subdues him, overpowers him to the point where they flee out of the house naked and wounded. You know, this really backfired on him. You know, uh, it's kind of dangerous to try to do some of these things if you don't do it legitimately. And uh, you can imagine the effect that would have. I mean, this is this is probably more influential, has more impact than anything Paul was doing to see what happens when somebody who doesn't really have a connection with the Lord tries to just use his name as a secret formula. Comments and questions on all that? Um, you know, in this version, in verse 13, it describes the Jewish exorcists as itinerant? Yeah. Do you know what... Uh -huh. what in my translation, it says who went from place to place. Itinerant means, you know, I, always on the move. Itinerant? Oh, okay. An itinerant preacher is somebody who kind of rides Just, a circuit. He doesn't stay in place. Oh, okay. But, yeah, not one of those words that you probably run across every day of the week. <laughs> yeah, no. You've expanded your vocabulary now, so... So they thought they'd come up with a new password or a new special saying like abracadabra type exactly hey i got this new phrase let's try this yeah. <laughs> this will really impress the people <laughs> well, i think they think it'll work better yeah you know paul's been having better luck than they have well yeah i mean maybe they think it would work at all <laughs> yeah anything would be better yeah no doubt uh, people do all kinds of stuff, you know. It's amazing how mechanical people's ideas can sometimes be about spiritual things. You just get the right formula. I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, how much different is this than the rosary? You know, you finger the beads and pray the prayers, you know, and it's praying the prayers. It's like, wow, just... You know, rapid fire, not thinking about it, just reciting them based upon the bead gives you these special, you know, blessings from God. I mean, is is our world that much different? There are plenty of other <clears throat> illustrations of that. That's just the one that came to mind. When we have that tendency, and I mean, sometimes Christians can have that tendency. I mean, you know, do we think that, you know, taking some grape juice and eating some bread mindlessly... Yeah. You know, somehow gives us some special spiritual power. You know, divorce it from what it means, and it's nothing more than having a crackers and drinking some grape juice. You know, it's always the way it is. It's not just the, the act of saying the right formula ever. It's always the heart and doing it for the Lord that counts. Same thing with, I mean, singing. Oh, sure. Just following along, looking through the thing. Well, exactly. Yeah. What is is it? First uh, Corinthians fourteen fifteen that yes. says to sing with understanding and spirit. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. We sometimes use prayer in that way. Uh, people think that all I have to do is say this prayer and I'm going to yeah. do well or whatever. Yeah. 
and maybe almost come up with kind of a formula that you say, that if you say it this way, you know, this will give so many blessings. I was talking about this lady, she's not really religious at all, her husband's Catholic, but I work with this girl, and she said that, uh, you know, her husband does that, that prayer where they just always say the same thing, and like, and, um, and I was like, why don't, like, why don't they ever just, you know, why don't they ever just ever pray, you know what I mean, say whatever is on his mind, he says, well, the Bible says the Lord knows, you know, what we want, what we need, or something, you know what I mean, and so the guy just thinks that, you know, because God knows what we need, that, you know, that we don't need to pray for what we need, you know, and that was, the, I never heard that argument before, but that's what, at least this Catholic guy thinks, so, I mean, that's why he doesn't pray for what he wants or what he needs, he just knows that God, you know, that God knows what we want and what we need, so he just thinks he doesn't have to pray, so he doesn't, so, yeah. I don't know, I just thought that was interesting. Other thoughts? Camera. Going along with what he's saying, if um, if God already knows what we're saying, um, why do the beads? He knows what's on the beads. Right. Why pray? Well, yeah, if it's mindless, if, if we're not really saying anything, you know, that doesn't mean anything. And prayer is not a mechanical formula anyway. You know, it's not like well, if I pray it just right, if I say the right words, if I say it the right number of times or whatever, then that's kind of the key to unlock this, these blessings. It's not like that. We are praying to a personal God we have a personal relationship with. And I think we can make prayer into some sort of an impersonal sort of a coin to put in the vending machine. And that is not a biblical concept at all. Say. So, <clears throat> And you're not going to have any motivation to pray. That's it. That's just what it is. You're doing it to do it. It's not. It's not going to push you to want to do it. And that's what the Lord wants. You know, if He's doing it for for you, and in a lot of ways, prayer is for us. In a, in a lot of ways. Well, we we may have motivation only to say our prayers, not to pray. Other <laughs> thoughts. All right, um, well, this uh, does have an impact, 17 to 20. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone and they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Okay. So, you know, the people hear about this, they fear the Lord, they're magnifying the name of the Lord. Many of the believers seem to be affected by this, moved by this, and they're confessing and disclosing their connection with uh, the spirit world, with the magical practice and so forth. They bring their books together and burn them, 50,000 pieces of silver worth. You know, so, so you see that the believers are even turning um, with, with greater fervor to the Lord. I mean, 50,000 pieces of silver is nothing to sneeze at. You know, wow, that much worth of magic books the believers bring and burn. What does that show you about? 
their dedication. Their dedication. They've repented. They've repented. If they've repented, what does burning the books do for them? They can't go back. Exactly. It's kind of like burning their bridges. Commitment. Absolutely. Conversion. You know, you remove the temptation, the possibility of reverting back to your old life. That is commitment. That really demonstrates repentance. It's a sacrifice, but it's better than what uh, Peter said to Simon the Sorcerer, your silver perish with you. Better that the silver perish and me not. You know, so they really did the right thing here. And it was a powerful, uh, you know, example. The word of the Lord in verse 20 was growing mightily and prevailing and kind of another summary statement of what's going on here. It's very encouraging to see this kind of commitment on the part of the believers. Comments and questions? Don't, don't you also see uh, how disgusted they are with their former practices? Good point. Amen. Yeah. We don't want those books around anymore. When we've come to renounce the old life and we hate it. <coughs> yeah. Cameron. Um, and they're not going in, like, just getting rid of them out of their life and giving it to others to send. They're completely getting rid of them, not having a temptation for others. They could have put those on eBay and hard telling what they've gotten out of them, you know? <laughs> that is a very good point. Yeah, it is a good point. I mean, you know, you wonder, are there some things like that we ought to be... Uh, Collecting up and burning. Well, like, I know when you know once uh, I guess once my convictions start coming strong enough, you know, I noticed that when I converted from the world, the, the CD, a lot of CDs I was listening to, I was like, I can't be listening to it anymore. All the time the cussing and stuff, and I, and I thought of you know, it crossed my mind to give it to other people, and then I, well, before I did, I don't know, some, I started thinking, I'm like, you know. If I'm just giving it to other people, is not like I'm condoning it? You know what I mean? So I just threw it away. You know, I just threw like I just went through all my CDs and threw a bunch away one night. You know, and I mean, and that's why I like his point so strongly because if isn't it? Don't you agree that it's just kind of like condoning it if you're just giving it along? There was there was a brother in Brazil who at the time was probably like 15. I don't remember 15 or 16, and uh, you know he was listening to some things that he shouldn't be listening to. Some of them were in English, but you know, wow, really the titles were horrible even at that. And, uh, you know, we talked about it a little bit. He said, man, I spent a lot of money for this. <laughs> you know, but before I left there that time, he said, he, he sacked him up. He said, would you destroy these for me? Which I did. You know, I think he may not have trusted himself to do it. He didn't want to give them to somebody else. He saw the yeah. fallacy in that. He wanted to restore There are times when that's what we need to do. Um, you know, I don't know what you know, your connection with the sin has been, but you got to get out of the things that pull you into that sin. I mean, I, I really think this needs to happen literally more than it does, mm -hmm. but some of you saw Fireproof and what Caleb did to his computer. Mm -hmm. I mean, if your computer is mm -hmm. doing to you what it did to that man, get a baseball bat <laughs> and, and bust it. Make sure your neighbor's watching. <laughs> 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 yes. If you haven't seen the movie, that doesn't make much sense to you. So uh, but yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it's like, wow! And I can imagine somebody saying, 
but I spent spend good money for that computer. And there might be there might be a little bit more justification for putting the computer on eBay. I don't know. Uh, there's some good things that can be done with that. But but wow, I mean, it's amazing to me how much we hang on to things that are constantly tripping us up and are dragging us back into old life. It's better to go into life maimed and blind than to have two eyes and two feet going into hell. That's what Jesus said about it. So give it up, you know, whatever that might be. I think this is a great example. I mean, man, they really sacrificed. But on the other hand, they didn't sacrifice at all. What they got out of this was worth a whole lot more than anything those magic books would have ever given. Other comments and thoughts? Grover Stevens, and I, most of the people here would know him, but he was uh, uh, very evangelistic, taught a lot of people. But he was riding in a car with a, uh, a fellow that was a mason. And uh, he was talking with him about the uh, uh, masonry and how wrong it was. And he was so convicting in what he said. He said as they were riding along in the car, the fellow just, he was angry. And he rolled the window down, took his ring off, and threw it out the window. He was so disgusted with, with the years wow. that he had spent wow. in masonry. Wow. Isn't that what you do if you really are converted to the Lord? You really see who He is, and you really do hate the old <clears throat> life and the old man, and you put it to death. You know, when we when we cling on to that old life, kind of like Lot's wife, you know, longingly looking back, you can tell we haven't really changed. You know, we may have been baptized, but our heart has never left the world. Say. I mean, it's exactly what Romans 6 is saying. That's verse by verse, exactly what Romans 6 is saying. You hate this or you don't. You love the Lord or you don't. That's the exact same thing that chapter 7 is going to say. You serve one master or you serve the other master. You're a slave to one or the other. You can't serve two masters. Um, so either you hate it or you don't. You kill the old man, you don't hide him. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want. You know, if you just, uh, you know, <laughs> anesthetize him for a while where he can revive, that's not going to help. You want to, you want him out of commission permanently and no chance of going back. Yes. Well, I didn't fully understand Boyd's thing because I don't know what this ring's about. What, what is Do you know about? what masonry is? Uh, okay. You want to... <laughs> uh, I don't know enough about masonry. Mm -hmm to uh, make many comments, but uh, uh, masonry is a false religion. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, it, it is a secret. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, you know, masonry is probably not quite as popular with the younger generations no. as it was with older people. They, they wear rings, I guess, yes. to show that they're and, and took this ring off. Yeah, and, and people them. would, okay. some people would be, you know, would become Christians, but continue to hang on to the masonry yeah. as something that they could continue to do as a Christian. Mm -hmm. Sometimes just not realizing it was a religion, sometimes not caring or whatever, but okay. you know, biblically speaking, when you understand what masonry is, it is a religion in itself, and so you couldn't serve two masters. Okay. But, but the illustration is just the idea you, you right. throw even something precious away from you if it's something that's keeping you from being right with God. Mm -hmm. that, that's a really good, that's a good concept. And uh, 
You know, we probably need to think a lot more about that. And we need to think about the fact, is it a sacrifice to get rid of something that's keeping us from the Lord? <laughs> you know, in one sense, wow, we ought to be eager to do that. You know, it's like, would it be a sacrifice to, uh, you know, to, to, to get rid of some little something that's not worth very much that's keeping, keeping, say, if you're a kid, keeping your dad from handing you the keys to some, you know, brand new sports car, you know, or something like that? Well, man, I mean, why wouldn't you give up some little something that's keeping you from having something so much better? A relationship with God is worth so much more than anything we could ever have. That's what we've got to realize. So, this has a great impact. Any other thoughts or comments on that? Shane? It reminds me of and I think around this, I, my mind's going blank on the chapter, but I think it's in the end of Second Samuel where David um, he's made a mistake, and the Lord tells him that you need to, uh, you know, he, he had a choice between three things that the Lord could have done for the people, um, and in the whole thing is that he wants to offer sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, and I think I got the story right; I might be wrong, but he wants to sacrifice to the Lord. And one of the men says, "You know, I'll give you this place. I'll give you the, you know, the bull and all these things." He says, "I won't sacrifice you to the Lord. It'll cost me nothing." Second Samuel 24. Okay, well, I have a second 22, so. But the idea here is that, and a lot of people look at it this way. Okay, I'll do this, but what's it going to cost me? I'll do this, but I can't give that up. Um, and, and I guess if we look at it that way, David knew that wasn't the right attitude. David knew that to do these things, it takes sacrifice. Sure. And that's what this is all about. Uh, and we're so willing to sacrifice things for this world, and so less willing to sacrifice it for the Lord. All right, look at 21 and 22. <clears throat> now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Okay, so this is kind of where Paul is headed. And uh, you kind of have to look at this a little bit to figure out where he's going when. If you look at all that, where's the first place he's planning on going? First places. Macedonia and Achaia. What are the churches we know about in Macedonia? Philippi. Thessalonica. And Berea. Yeah. And what are the churches we know about in Achaia? Corinth. Corinth. And actually... Maybe Athens? Ephesus? No, not Ephesus. Not a, well, there may have been a church in Athens. There's one other church we actually know about in Achaia, but we don't usually think about the fact that we know about it. <laughs> <laughs> this would be a good trivia question for advanced uh, trivia players. St. Cree. Phoebe was a member of the church in St. Cree. So there evidently was the one there too, but whatever. Uh, I think he probably went to uh, to Corinth. Um, so he was going through there, kind of finishing out the third journey from Macedonia to Achaia. What was the next place he he had purpose to go to? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And then where does he want to go? He wanted to see Rome. <laughs> yes, probably not for the same reason most people would want to see Rome, but yes. Paul sort of has a pioneer spirit, always trying to press forward, 
always wanting to revisit and confirm the souls of the disciples, but also wanting to, uh, you know, pioneer new territories with the gospel and go further, go to other places. And a, li a little later than this, he'll write the book of Romans, and we actually know he's got one more place beyond Rome he wants to go to, and where was that? Spain. So he's got a lot of plans. Uh, whether or not he ever went to Spain, I don't know, and he didn't go to Rome as a free man, but he did come to Rome. But, but these are the things Paul is wanting to do. And this kind of sets the agenda for the rest of the book. Because most of the rest of the book is Paul on his way to Rome, uh, somewhat unavoidably detained in that. But comments and questions through 22. Is it true that while he was at Ephesus, he writes 1 Corinthians? Yes, that is true. So during this time this period... Time. Exactly right. So did he send a letter with Timothy and Erastus to go to Corinth? You know, that's a good question. I'm thinking I had a note that he wrote First Corinthians from here. Yeah, from Ephesus. That's where he's at. Well, I don't see Ephesus there. Well, he's in Ephesus starting back in 1901. Oh, okay. Yeah. He I stayed in that. Asia. So, I yes. guess. Okay. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 4.17 might indicate that he sent the letter with Timothy. Um, 4.17. Uh, although, he says, if Timothy comes in 16.10. Um, maybe, I think it might be more likely he sent the letter in 16.17 with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. I don't know. <laughs> Other comments or questions through 22? Okay. Yes. Um, what does it mean by verse 21? I don't know what, you're, what the New American Standard reads, but in verse 21 in the New King James it says, Paul purposed in the Spirit. What, is that? what does that mean? He decided. So just decided. Um, I mean, he had the, he, he made his, you know, set purpose, what he's, what he's planning on doing. What does it mean in the spirit? I mean, how, I don't know how to explain it to somebody. Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, if you purpose something in the flesh, you'd be doing it for your own pleasure mm -hmm. or for some worldly agenda. Well, this is not this is not something he's doing for uh, sightseeing purposes. Yeah, something to glorify God. Right. And doing. Okay, that's good. Other questions or comments? Well, there's another event that occurs before Paul gets out of uh, town, out of Ephesus, and this is uh, quite an event. Uh, I'm not sure the best way to divide this up, but how about uh, 23 to 27? About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon the business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. 
Not only is there danger that this chariot of ours falls into dispute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Okay, they've got a big problem here. Demetrius rallies his fellow craftsmen <laughs> around the goddess Artemis, or you may have a translation that says Diana. It's the same thing. The shrine to Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the craftsmen in Ephesus make a killing, making, you know, silver shrines and things for Diana. However, now that Paul and his uh, people are preaching the gospel in Ephesus and the surrounding region, what's hurting? What's what's happening to the craftsman's business? Yeah, sales are down. That's pretty remarkable. Evidently, there was enough people listening to what Paul was saying that it was actually making inroads on the on the sales on the market. Mm. You know that that's pretty impressive. I wouldn't have expected that enough of a percentage of people were being influenced by Paul's preaching to make any difference, but clearly it did. Now, maybe nearly any difference would have bothered them, but uh, they're pretty riled up about that, and um, you know, you can kind of see that their real motive for creating this disturbance was financial. You know, they were losing out on money, but you know, are you going to be able to rally all the townspeople, you know, around your cause when you say, I'm not making as much money as I was? What is the line they're feeding the public? Diana is being dishonored. Yes, Diana, the goddess, and perhaps our civic pride, after all, we're the protector of the temple of Diana. It's very common for people to cloak their selfish interests in patriotism or religion or something that seems noble. And so that's what he's doing. He's, uh, you know, saying this is, this is attacking, you know, the great goddess that we, uh, we worship. Her, her divine honor is at stake. And uh, we're, just, we're just really horrified by this. You know, with worldly people, you can never trust what they're saying. <laughs> Their true motives are often different from what they say. Uh, may that not be true of us. All right, comments and questions on this section <laughs> through 27. So I just want to understand that. Or, no, I want to understand what's going on here. Um, so basically, this Demetrius and other people like him were making, they're making, like, were they making, like, like figurines? Replicas, like, of Diana, just basically, like, of Yeah, I and, guess, and or other artifacts related to her. And so these people were buying these and yes. kind of worshipping maybe yes. a thing as a god and then uh, yes. so these people that were listening to Paul and doing they were, okay I see. So they're not they weren't buying them anymore. They were not people. Demetrius exactly. People. It was hurting okay. the business. Okay. That makes sense. Wow. That's a good yeah. dent. <laughs> I mean that's crazy. But. Well as I say you know most businessmen are sensitive to any, to any dent in the well, business. Yeah. But still, yeah. yeah, that's impressive that they even noticed. Yeah. And uh, reminds me of, of, I think I mentioned this, but one of the brothers in Brazil, his family, that's what they do. They make religious paraphernalia. I don't know what you want to call it, but, but you know, shrines and figurines and things like that uh, for, for religions, you know, mostly Catholic and, and perhaps some spiritism and things like that. 
And, uh, you know, he worked in the business from the time he was nine until he was 16 and then, then got out of it. But it's a, it's a barrier to some of his family members in listening to the gospel because that's how they make a living. <laughs> you know? uh, we don't think about that maybe quite as much in, in our culture. Would the, uh, the exorcists be related to this? You mean the seven sons of Stephen? Yeah, I mean that. Well, the ones that brought fifty thousand. Oh, well, I maybe, mean, obviously. Maybe so. There, if not, there was some other large uh, <laughs> well, movement going on in Ephesus too. Which is probably true. You know, the worship of these gods and goddesses was never exclusive. Uh, so I mean, they they had other kinds of religious beliefs along with this, and that was understood as being compatible. You know, we're the ones that are really different. When we believe you worship God, you can't worship anything else at all. It's God, you know, if you've got God that excludes all the others. Their idea was always you worship all of them. <laughs> you know, a bunch of them. You know, hedge your bets, you know. Uh, who knows which horse will win, so <laughs> you know, bet on them all. Uh, that, that's kind of the idea that they had, but, but certainly they were especially partial to this goddess uh, since uh, she had this special connection with Ephesus. Other thoughts? Yeah, Brian. Um, okay, so, because I don't really understand, you know, the culture, you know, back then, when they, if they were worshipping this Diana or whomever else it may be, why did they feel like they needed, like, physical, you know, it's not like if, say someone buys a like necklace, you know, we had it with a crucifix on, you know, something. It's not like they worship the necklace. It's just a symbol. Of the, I mean, were they worshiping the thing that they're buying, or were they like worshiping Diana? Or you know what I'm saying? Like, why? Why they feel like they had to buy these things from Demetrius and others? Same reason people buy crosses today, mm -hmm. and other religious artifacts of all sorts. Um, so Demetrius was just taking advantage of that and making anything that would sell related to. Diana, he can Absolutely. he can make a, mm -hmm. a silver D and sell it, or a, oh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> probably have to be a Delta, but yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't know how they spelled it, but yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, you, people are really not very consistent in all of this. I mean, I suspect that theoretically, most people acknowledge that the artifact itself is not really the God. But that's not how they look at it. That's not how they treat it. Okay. I mean, again, our closest connection with that is probably the Catholic, you know, beliefs. I mean, you know, I don't really think that, you know, maybe any Catholic would say, this image is my God. I don't think they would think that. And yet, the way they look at it and treat it, why do they bow down before the image of Jesus on the cross when they come into their church buildings? And, you know, why do they hang, I don't even remember, which saint is it that you hang in your car to keep it from crashing and things like that? You know. What, I mean, really? Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Christopher. Is that Christopher? Yeah. I was thinking it was Christopher, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't think they would argue that that image itself is the saint. And yet they feel a lot more secure if he's hanging around their visor or whatever. You know, I mean, so we're a lot like that. I mean, think, think mankind is a lot like that. You know, we like things we can see and identify with. You know, we feel more secure. I, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's a little hard to understand that mentality. It's so common in Brazil. 
and just surrounded by it in Brazil. And even the evangelicals do all kinds of stuff with various artifacts and things like that, kind of catering to the superstition of the culture. And they're just, they're just very, very steeped in that kind of thing. And so you're not always logical when you, when you do that kind of stuff. What is it like? Because I had an old best friend where his mom, she wasn't a Christian, but I guess she, you know, she believed God's real. And, but she would always buy, you know, cross things and hang around the house. And she felt like, she, I think she said she felt safer. Yeah, yeah, felt exactly. Like, it, exactly. Sad, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. But, but why? I mean, she didn't really think that physical cross was going to protect her, right, right. but it, it felt like it. And I mean, you know, if the image of Mary or whatever, they, they wouldn't really say that's Mary. But, but you know, to them it almost feels like it. Okay. You know, it, it seems like it. Yeah, they like bring the little statues in and then they like say, bless our home or something like that. Yeah. They pray to them. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. And they would say that it helps them relate. It helps them, you know, feel closer to God. I think, I think maybe they might think it's easier to talk to something, even if it's inanimate, yes. than talking to, like, nothing. Well, talking to God, but you can't physically see Him. Yeah. It's easy to do that. I mean, I'm not sure I've got good illustrations, but I think, you know, we can develop the same sort of thing. We can develop sort of a physical thing that we have an attachment to. I mean, I don't know, maybe there's a little bit of that in how people view a church building. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, you mean a church building? You know, you, you said that well. I mean, you know, if you said something wrong, you shouldn't say it in a church building. <laughs> I mean, do we really think God is more present in the church building than he would be in somebody else's building? You know, I mean... Theoretically, I think we'd say no, but I think there are people who, you know, would just cringe at the one and not think anything about the other. You know, if we're not careful, we have the very same misconceptions. Theoretically, no, but in practice, yes. Other thoughts? Shane? Well, no, I mean, also that uh, it's easier for him to pray in a church building or with people not because he feels like God is there, but he can't go in his own room. You know, it's sort of that kind of same yeah. thing. You know, it's like, I feel the Lord here. The Lord is here in the church building, but yeah, it's hard for us to feel like that whenever we're on. Those are easy things to slip into. Yes? Um, so is it wrong to have a cross necklace or something? Or is it just the fact that you think, like, some people think that it's more precious than something else? I mean, because, I mean, I have one, but my friend gave it to me. So it's not like, it's not like I sit there and think, Every time I wear it, I'm all holy and stuff, but... Yeah. Probably not everybody in here would answer that question the same way. I think it depends on what we think about and what we're using it for. You know, if we think of it as something that, by wearing it, it gives us a special connection with God, and it specially protects us and things like that, I think that's the wrong concept. You know, yeah, I'm not particularly concerned about you know, that as simply a symbol of our, um, you know, trust or belief in the Lord or something like that. And there may be some people who would feel like that is wrong. I don't know. Somebody want to make a comment on that? <laughs> I mean, I, I was just scared. Like, I would see, like, cross necklaces, and, like, I heard somebody told me once that it was wrong to do that. So I, I would see one and be like, oh, that's cute. But then it's like, no, I probably shouldn't. Because I don't know, it's like well, someone told me that it was... Can I say something? Sure. Okay, well, you know, when I... 
when what if I, I just said no? <laughs> <laughs> when I, uh, okay, well, you know, when I converted, I, I was atheist when I converted, and so I, for some reason, thought that I remember getting a cross almost immediately, you know, after I was converted, and a cross necklace, and, and I would wear it, and uh, I do remember at the time, it, I, for some reason, thought, like, it, it made me feel like I was closer to God, because, like, I, I guess, like, you know, and, like, and, um, and then as I went on, you know, I would hear, you know, I, I meet new Christians and hear different things and their viewpoints on stuff like this and such. Or like having bumper stickers on the back of your car, you know, that says, I don't know, something, you know, some kind of, uh, like, uh, Jesus, you know, or something like, I don't know, some kind of Jesus thing. And, and a lot of people, a lot of Christians, I mean, have told me that, you know, it's something that we, we don't need to be going around having these things because we should, it should be showing in our actions, not in having these kind of bumper stickers or these necklaces. And I'm at the point where... I don't think it's a problem at all to have a, have a cross necklace or a, some kind of bumper sticker, you know, or something, and uh, there's nothing wrong with it at all, in and of itself, like inherently. Sure. Um, I think it just is how you look at it, because I know tons of people who have these cross necklaces, that some is just for um, some kind of fashion statement. I mean, I've seen that too, where they just wear it for a fashion, not anything religious, and, and uh, I don't know how many times I've seen girls that are uh, dressed immodestly and having you know crosses and I'm like you know you see that and it, it, it makes me kind of cringe you know because I'm like well, I get kind of mad I guess when girls you know what I mean and stuff and so uh, but then you're then you're pretty much stereotyping them saying that they're that well, they're wearing it because it means something to them they could just be wearing it fashion and they could be that too yeah I guess I guess because when I see a cross you know when you got a Christian you know who's taking their religion so seriously you know and they're really loving the Lord and they're trying to do everything I guess it's hard for me to see our girl who I suppose is, you know, I suppose is too revealing, you know, and having a cross necklace, it's kind of like, I don't know, I guess I get offended. You know, uh, pro it's like, probably a lot of those things, people think of them different. Yeah. You know, that may be true of people wearing them, it may be true of people looking at them. So probably in a lot of those situations, it depends on what is in people's minds. You know, we might have to think a little bit about what kind of impression is this going to leave one way or the other. In and of itself, I personally don't see a problem with but there may be some implications, depending on who's looking at it, that may mm -hmm. be a problem, or there may be some concepts I've got that could make it a problem. I've never worn <laughs> I just think if someone does, I think if no. someone does, because we always should be setting a good example, obviously, as Christians, but if you're going to be sporting around that cross necklace, I think you should really be. Well, people you are know, be if you. we're going to be a Christian, yeah. shouldn't we behave? Well, yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, we, we do have a responsibility. We do wear the name of Christ, and right. hopefully somebody knows that we're a Christian, and our conduct does reflect on the Lord. So, you know, I, I think that we always need to think about that, and who knows? I mean, you know, there can be people see us that we don't even know, that maybe we may later get to know, or whatever, and what if what they've seen in us is behavior that's very inappropriate to a Christian, and then they find out we are one? Mm -hmm. All right, um, we got time for maybe a little bit more of this. Would somebody read twenty-eight to uh, thirty-two? And when they heard this, and were, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, "Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!" And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him, and also some of the Asiarchs 
who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority did not know for what cause they had come together. All right, so they get, a, you know, kind of a frenzy. You know, they, they start uh, coming into this theater, hollering, dragging a couple of Paul's companions, you know, and, and you know how riots are. You know, get to where everybody comes, half of them don't even know why they're there or what they're yelling about. You know, it's, it's uh, kind of funny, but mobs are a lot like that. You know, it's all based on emotion. And, uh, you know, they, they have been able to whip them into a, a frenzy, but not with everybody understanding what this is all about. Paul wanted to go there. And some of the civic leaders who were friends of his, the Asiarchs, said no, not to go into this theater. And, I mean, it would have been very unwise for Paul to do that. I mean, there's nothing he's going to accomplish by that. There's certainly not in a, in a, in a mentality, a mental state to listen. And uh, so that's, that's what the silversmiths do. They're going to create a riot to try to overthrow the teaching of Paul and keep this, uh, this business interest of theirs thriving. Comments and questions? Cameron. It's kind of like monkey see, monkey do. What, they get a little bit together and people just gather and make a huge mob. Absolutely, and they don't even think about what it means. It even says most of them do not know why they come together. That's just funny. I think, yeah. a I think Acorn bust them in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. For a protest. Yeah. I mean, you know, wow. That's uh, the way the world is. Notice that in 32, the word, the assembly was in confusion. Believe it or not, that's the word that almost always is translated church. The church was in confusion. This wasn't exactly a spiritual assembly. <laughs> but the word church just means a group of people, an assembly of people. So that's, that's, that's the word there. How'd they... <laughs> How'd Paul get out of this in the first place? They grab uh, this Gaius and Aristarchus. I don't really know. The same way earlier when Luke managed to get out of the yeah being stoned or beaten or whatever yeah, happened. Beaten with rods and thrown in prison. Yeah, I don't really know. I don't know if the Lord has a hand in this. If Paul was just in the right place at the right time or what. <laughs> but it was good he didn't go in. I mean, you know, sometimes we kind of be prudent as well as brave. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> it's not going to help him to just be thrown to the wolves. I mean, it's not going to help the cause. It's not that he's a coward, but grief. But, but just unnecessarily martyring ourselves is not helpful. It would, it would have been foolish. Exactly, it would have been. Kevin? For those you guys that got grabbed... Do you think there was the people that had no idea what they were doing grabbing them? Or do you think it was the uh, people that knew what they were doing? Probably those who knew what they were doing. I mean, okay. I guess. Yeah. What? How do you think the disciples didn't allow him to go? I mean, I think they literally just feel like grabbed Paul and said, no, you're not going in there. Oh, I think they talked him out of it. Just talked him out of it? Yeah. Okay. They repeatedly urged him, these Asiarchs did in 31. That's true. Yeah. Paul listened. All right, well, good good study. Uh, probably need to quit here, but uh, we can work on picking up in 33. I will be here next week. I will not be here two weeks from now, and I don't know yet about three weeks from now, but I will be here next week, Lord willing.